For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 706 on CJAD 800. Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with my co-host, Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. How's it going, Josh? Always excellent, Dan. Perfect. And with us this evening, we're going to talk logistics and transportation. Uh, Stephen Siegel is here of Omnitrans. Uh, Stephen, welcome to CJAD. Welcome. Thank you very much, guys. It's absolutely great to be here. Good to have you. So first, uh, very simple, the simplest question of the night. Tell us about yourself and about Omnitrans. I am a chartered accountant from my former life, joined Omnitrans almost 30 years ago. Omnitrans is a Canadian and U.S. customs broker, international freight forwarder, truck freight broker, and courier reseller in business for over 36 years. Now, there's a, there's a lot of things that Omnitrans does. I mean, you kind of had a mouthful right <laughs> there. Uh, you know, usually I don't ask this the first question, but it kind of strikes me. Did you always, did Omnitrans always have all those services or did it really start on one and kind of grow? It's a great question. We, we started off as Canadian Customs Brokers, founded in 1976. It, everything was an evolution. We went into U.S. Customs Brokerage and then after that we went into Truck Freight Brokerage. And then the next logical step was international freight forwarding and then courier reselling. We really, it was an evolution of meeting our clients' ever demanding increasing needs. Was it something that was, you went in eyes wide open? Did it fall upon you? Did it slap you in the face? <laughs> or you saw a need in the market that you went to attack? I would love to tell you that it was our brilliant strategy and fantastic planning, but actually it was our clients. Our clients, who have always been unbelievable supporters of our company, our clients would say to us, if you can give us the same services you're giving us in your Canadian service offering, we would love to give you the business if you were a U.S. customs broker. And the next thing you know, we were U.S. customs brokers and opening offices in the States and developing more products and more expertise. And it was really a natural evolution, but really it was our, our clients who are our biggest fans. The, there's Clearly, there has to be a ton of regulations in your industry. You're venturing from Canadian to U.S. How big is the learning curve? It's uh, First of all, we have a whole U.S. operation with U.S. people. But it's, you're 100% right. They're actually two different worlds, but we have a, it's given us a very strategic positioning in the marketplace because most brokers are either Canadian customs brokers or U.S. customs brokers. We took a very strategic market position by doing both and offering our clients, you know, when the world of NAFTA came in, we had an unbelievably strong position in being able to service companies going back and forth over the border because we handled both sides and had all the data and information and expertise to deal with with all the complexities and valuation and, and all the fun stuff that Canada and U.S. Customs loves. Do regulations change often? About as much as, as you could ever imagine. But not only regulations changing, but even the, the, even the world of all the complexities of importing and exporting in logistics, not only regulations, that, that changes all the time too. Speaking of regulations, what about since 9-11? How has that sort of turned your world upside down? U.S. Customs has gone to a whole different place since 9-11. Canada, there has been some, but U.S. Customs has been drastic. They've changed so many rules and, and put up so many obstacles that it makes it very difficult for companies who are not who are not really prepared for doing business with the states. It makes it very difficult for them to really attack that market and stay consistently on site. Do you have formal processes? I mean, you have to have at least a body or <laughs> somebody dedicated to making sure you're always on top of the rules and regulations. I'm sure your clients call you all the time. How do I do that? What should I do? This law has changed. 
how do we get around it? Or it's deal interesting. With it? You know, I remember when I started off, we were a small little company of 13 people. Today we're 200 people. There's there's subgroups inside our organization, teams of experts, technology teams, technical and consulting groups who are truly experts in the world of customs and all of the and all of the intricacies that go with those worlds. But yes, we have we have actually we have groups of people today that are as big as our company when we originally started who just deal with the complexities of customs laws and regulations. Now you, Steven Siegel, how did you get into this business? Well, I was very fortunate. I was a young CA, so I know your world very well, Josh. We won't hold it against you. It's okay. <laughs> it's, I was a young CA who realized that I really was yearning for the entrepreneurial world of business. And I met this incredible gentleman who's now my partner. His name is Marty Goldenberg, who was running Omnitrans and felt that he really wanted to up the standard of what we were doing internally and hired me as this 26-year-old CA. And I started from there as the controller of the company and then worked my way up until what I do today as the president. Now, were you, you just moved from there? I mean, did you, was there any, what was, what was the kind of the timeline and how did you kind of move from that employee status to partner? I, I, started, I started off after as a controller, I went into the VP finance. Our organization was in a growth, growth mode all the way along. We've always, every year we've grown. But the reality was is that I, I, it was, my partner realized that my talents were really not as most people who know me would tell you, really not in the financial world, but much more in the entrepreneurial side of building a business. So he really gave me the opportunity to work with him. He mentored me, gave me his vision, gave me his morals, gave me his standards, gave me, gave me really a lot of the tools that I use in everyday business today to have the proper uh, moral settings and, and the ethical, ethical vision of what this company should be. And, it all, and over the years of evolution and working carefully and closely with me, I evolved into this, this job. It's, it's not often that an employee becomes a boss, you know, like an owner. And I gather in, in the ranks and the people that you work with, they, do, they might look at you differently. Was it a difficult transition to go from, uh, as I said, employee to owner? It was the key word being transition. It's a slow progress. It's like, it's as if, you're, it's as if you've planted a seed and you're watching it grow. No seed becomes a tree overnight. And that is really the evolution of a career in business. Our, it takes years to build people around you and to build teams and to take the finest staff and keep on fine-tuning your staff and your processes and your technology and your vision and your strategic planning. All these things are a process and an evolution. And that is how it's been played out. I would imagine kind of your first day at work, uh, you know, as an <laughs> all owner. I wanted, in the all I wanted to do was our year-end numbers. <laughs> that was my first day at work. All I wanted to do was just do our a year in financial statements. You really tend to revert back to what you're most comfortable with in every environment, and mine was accounting as a young man. But you certainly get to evolve from that, and, and there's no doubt that the entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, that, that certainly exudes from you today and that your partner recognizes is huge. Now, you kind of go on, and I mean, there's got to be a huge part of your business that, as you say, you're went, you were 13, you're now 200. Human resource plays a huge role. It's a game... It's, it's truly, it's truly a, one of the most important parts of a business, and yet one that in my younger days I truly underestimated. In, in, the, in our early years, especially when we were in heavy rapid growth, when we were adding in all these synergistic product offerings, it was a game of catch-up. We, you know, people talked about human resource managers. What was a human resource manager? I remember when we had 75 people, it's like a little bell went off and somebody whispered in here, you know, you should have a human resource manager. And we're all looking at each other saying, 
what's a human resource manager? And I remember we put it, we started to, to try to find the right person and we hit 90 people and it, it became very obvious that managing your people and your team players and building the talent underneath you and the constant upgrading and fine tuning of that talent is in itself a business. It's a business within a business. And we take our people, of course, as our most valuable asset. So you have to give it really the most, the most incredible attention. And I would, I would imagine that the management team before you got your human resource manager, you were, go- you were the guys and gals scrambling to make sure that everybody was kind of treated fairly and equally. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember, I vividly remember saying to myself, I can't believe I'm spending a third of my day interviewing people. This is really what, you know, when you're in rapid growth mode you, and you don't have a human resource department, you really are spending so much of your time interviewing and assessing and, and then working. It's, it's managing this great, great resource. It was almost as if we won a lottery when we, got, when we got our human resource department in place because all of a sudden all this was done. And, of course, these are professional people and they do it five times better and more effectively than you could ever do it. And, and it really brought up our game quite a bit in handling, in handling all of that work and, uh, and planning. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it's, it's often and hopefully more often that entrepreneurs realize they can't do everything. Let them focus on their strengths and let somebody else who's better at that job, like human resource versus somebody else, do it because that's their profession. And that's who, that's who spends the, the most and best time on it. Today's entrepreneur on CJED 800, Stephen Siegel, our guest of Omnitrans. It's 7.15 right now. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD 800, 719. Our guest this evening, Stephen Siegel of Omnitrans. Josh, we're talking about the transportation industry, uh, about a lot of regulation, and about uh, how to market in a, uh, a very competitive business-to-business environment. And, and it's really tough. Uh, and before we get to marketing, because it's, uh, it's very interesting, and when we talk marketing, it's marketing, it's business development, it's client service, and I know that that's huge and paramount at Omnitrans. But just to continue on the topic of human resources that we were at before, you know the realization that Stephen and and his and his partners underwent that you know you can't do everything themselves all the time and you got to really look to people around you and hire the people around you and that's the recognition that hey I can only grow with other people around if not if I do it all so I kind of turned to Stephen and with that comment in mind and, and kind of want to elicit a response of of growing the team around you it's it's truly it's truly a, a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. My partner had a vision from the day that I started that he imparted on me, which was never, never settle for second best. If you want to be the best for your clients, get the best around you. If you find that people are not able to rise to the occasion, you have to make that tough call and you have to change up the team to give yourself the best chance to winning that game every time. And this has been really the essence of our evolution. We've always strived to be the best. It's not, this is not a, a sales pitch about our company. It is hardcore, hardcore um, coded into our DNA. Does that mean you guys have come to learn or you had easy decisions on to make a, when to maybe cut off a body? Like when, you know, you, you want to hire the best, you want to keep the best. It's not it's, always easy as to find It doesn't happen that. often, luckily, but, you know, it doesn't happen often. But what it really does, you know, when you're in a rapid growth organization, one of the things that you are is that you're a home for opportunity. So when you get people who are bright, hungry, aggressive, willing, and able, you create, you create a vacuum for them to really move quickly up. This is part of what has made us such a successful company, is we provided opportunity for people to grow. We have people who are with us today for 30 years who started off as kids. The, we, we've prepared that, but 
the, the, the building of an organization is there's many layers of a company. It's like a cake. There are just many different layers that you have to. You have to put icing in and, and, and all the different parts that form this beautiful product. We have from, from the most junior level to the most senior executive level, everything is about structuring your team and the hierarchy that supports it. So you have formal processes in place, targets, uh, lists of items and tasks that each group or level or individual must meet? Yes. We, everything you is, didn't always have that, no. though. I will say, in particular, in the last five years, this has really been a major focus for us, and it's paid huge dividends. You know, it's interesting. When I was reflecting about how I want to, how I want to approach uh, talking about our organization, one of the things I have to talk about is is the fine tuning evolution that's gone over the last five gone on over the last five years. We've really done, I'd like to say, a fantastic job in getting an incredible executive team. We have a team of twelve people who are each unbelievable in their own area. This team meets weekly as a starting point just to talk about to get the communication flowing between all the different divisions about what's going on every week in our company on on the ground level and then every month on a strategic planning basis with clear measurement uh, clear measurement uh, uh, items that each person has to report on and and complete and I think some of those items we'd be really interested to hear kind of the specifics on what you look for when we come back from the break maybe we can touch on some of those before we go on to that more marketing and business development role. Business plans, is that what you're saying? Are we going to business, business plans? Pl- no, no, okay. I was going to stay away from business <laughs> plans just for a moment. We'll work a different angle. Steven Siegel, our guest uh, from Omnitrans on today's Entrepreneur 723. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 725 on today's Entrepreneur. Welcome back. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Our guest this evening, Stephen Siegel of Omnitrans, and we're talking about uh, the way uh, that, uh, that Stephen, you run your, your operation of this uh, logistics business, and uh, you're very, you seem very strict with, uh, with all of your managers, and you meet frequently on a regular basis, have plenty of meetings. How do you sort of, uh, how do you sort of establish those, those key performance indicators, those goals, and then make sure that everyone is following up on them? Well, first, Dan, I'd like to say I'm hoping we're not strict, although that was my childhood in grade three with my teachers, but definitely not now. Um, discipline, I guess, would be the better word I'd like to use. What we've learned in our business is to create results, you have to first have a goal and a vision as to where you want to end up. You have to create a very clear plan at the beginning of each year, monitor that plan, and actually on a monthly basis create accountability by everybody as to how they're delivering on what they what they agreed they were going to be delivering in that plan. So we set clear KPIs, key performance indicators. We, we do things in revenue yield per transaction, in labor cost per transaction, in expense categories that are controllable, and what people say they're going to be able to deliver. And this goes, and this touches every area. We're talking about our finance group. We're talking about our technology group. We're talking about our division leaders. Each one has control over their area, and we've asked them to deliver on things that we agreed upon mutually at the beginning of the year as clear plans for the year in each of their areas. So, so does some of that include pricing? I mean, we're talking about certain KPIs and, you, you know, trying to get the return on your investment, of course. There's pricing aspects that, you, that you're constantly monitoring, I gather. We're, you know, our business, of course, in the freight business is a very fluid pricing model. In the brokerage business, it's much more of a static pricing model. But the reality is, as is in the case, I would imagine, the accounting business, is that the revenue sees very little growth on a per-client basis. And a lot of our businesses had to be driven through tremendous investment in technology to reduce to reduce our our transaction costs so we're able to take on more volume with not without adding the proportion of same number of people 
this is what helps yield the bottom line today because it's you know we live in a in a in a uh, economy today that just doesn't have a tremendous amount of, of room for growth and pricing so maybe you can give a bit of example of technology what it was when you first came <laughs> into the business versus today as it, as it relates to your operations when my partner started it was with a typewriter and that was his business. When I started, it was with this bookkeeping contraption that that looked more that looked more like out of a Star Wars movie about something that would be against a wall, a wall plugged in, with uh, with no movement. Today, we have millions of dollars invested in in technology. Where from when the minute a freight is picked up, a shipment's picked up in China, it's already it's already being tracked to to when it's on the railway, when it's on in customs, and when it, it's pulling into a guy's door. Every client can see all this information in almost a live environment. It's a very different situation from 20 years ago when somebody would call up and say, I'm not sure if, if your shipment is left yet and let me send a fax overseas and I'll get back to you tomorrow. Everything today is by the minute. Well, the reality is, I mean, certainly as we all live and breathe with, with all the technology out there, with everybody having a smartphone attached to them, if you don't have real-time information, your yesterday's news. It's real-time information accompanied by personalized service because anybody can put information into a computer, but you got to be there to support your clients. You've got to be there to fight and be their advocate because no matter what, we still live in a world that humans are involved. It's not only machines. So we're dealing with customs and we're dealing with freight carriers and we're dealing with warehouses and we're dealing with customs officers on the ground on inspections and everything else that goes with that world. So it, it's it's that combination of tight personalized service accompanied by the technology swing. Just quickly before we get to the break, was it an easy decision? Did you always try and stay ahead of the curve from technology or did you kind of we made the decision up. about eight years ago, and it's just been a tremendous investment and reinvestment and focus. So when you talked before about operating procedures like that, it has an equal focus and how to make yourselves ahead of your competition in leading products. Very interesting. And I said we were talking about marketing and business development. We'll come to that after <laughs> the break. Steven Siegel of Omnitrans joins us on today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 736, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fleur Landau's Josh Miller, and our guest this evening, Stephen Siegel of Omnitrans. Uh, they do transport uh, brokering. And uh, Stephen, let's talk about competition really briefly. How do you guys try to separate yourselves from, uh, from the rest in the marketplace? We've never actually looked at our competition as competition. We've found that special place, what we believe to be in the marketplace. As we strive to be the best, we believe that we're mostly regarded as being the best. So we, we really take business from our competitors. We rarely ever lose business. So it's not a matter of that we're fearing competition. As long as you're price competitive and you really strive to be the best, you don't feel the competition. You actually just take from the competition. So do you not actively market Omnitrends out there? We have a we have an active sales force. It's an expensive sales force. It's it's supported by it's supported by several different areas on top of the actual just salespeople. There's sales management. There are there are lead generating people. There are um, there are uh, sales administration people. And we have one other thing in our business that is a fantastic tool that very few, if any, of our competition enjoys, and that's called client relations consultants. We actually have people that their only job is to be on the road and interface between our clients and our operations people. And this job, in effect, becomes the face of Omnitrans at the clients, mm -hmm. and it forms a whole different level of a client experience. 
and one that basically none of our competition really does. So our clients become our advocates in the marketplace to drive business towards us. So you you don't have any kind of uh, visibility awareness programs or uh, you really rely on your client referrals. Right. right. We we really never saw much value uh, in that. Our, we are, in, in many ways, very similar to you. We deem ourselves to be professionals. And the same way that doctors don't advertise and, and accountants and lawyers don't advertise, we are professionals. We have a professional great staff. We have a staff that's paid at the level of professionals. And we don't believe that we're selling blankets at, uh, at the bay or you know anything like that. But you have a website that people can go and look Absolutely. and see what, so that that is partially. 100%. Our website is not only a visibility tool for us, but it's also a tool for our clients to source information and to be, and to be tied into things that are happening instantaneously around the world that relate to our business theirs do you ever you ever uh, you know you mentioned the individual i guess face to face your client relationship managers or or whatever name right. so you must have a process for dealing with internal problems or yes. you know the plus there's pluses and minuses that can come from it how do you we deal are with we are in a transaction based environment we have well over two hundred thousand transactions a year that we're dealing with in shipments so, of course, in that world and in all the dynamics of the different facets that support a transaction from, from freight and customs and warehousing and everything else that goes with it, things are going to happen. Our people are very proactive and deal spontaneously with the clients, always with the, with the basis of doing what's best for the client and to settle up whatever is needed by them to, uh, to take care of them. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little about financing uh, and growth and, and kind of recessions. I mean, right. you know, you deal with customers in industry that when there's a recession, they're going to import less, they're going to export less. How have you dealt with the recessions over the years? There's really, uh, first of all, I, I say again, my, my partner, Marty, who ha- had started with a vision that he taught me many years ago about keeping our company strong. Every year, we made sure that we had to leave money in our company. We don't believe in stripping our company. A portion of our profits every year are left in, even though for banking purposes, we have no need at all for our covenants to keep money in the, any more money in the company. But you never know, and because of that, we've always left our business strong. As such, it's left us to, to really a position of independence. But having said that, to come back to recession, the 2008 and 2009 meltdown in the United States, you know, we really crippled the import-export community. On top of that, the freight business is where a customs broker may be clearing the same number of transactions, but their people are bringing in less. The freight business, your revenues are totally tied into the weights and volumes of shipments. So there was a big meltdown. It was, it was a very radical thing that we had to deal with aggressively, but thank God it was only a six-month or so hit, and uh, we survived it with no problem. Your industry is, is, is particularly interesting in the context of a recession because you're really on the front lines. I mean, you see it coming before everyone else, right? Right. We actually are the front lines. You're 100% correct. We, we have a bit of a lag time, of course, because the real front line, of course, is the factories in China. Their orders are, are, are running 30 to 60 days behind when the goods are going to be ready to be shipped. But from, there on, from then on, we're going to be the first people to see what's going on. But, you know, in reality, Omnitrans has actually done had some of its best years in recession because our competition... Uh, to use that word as you so nicely put before, our competition, when they get into bad times, tends to cut out staff, cut out services, and we've always kept our business strong and client-focused. And as such, our clients never felt any recession with us in the in the world of service support. And in reality, we stepped up our game and usually took a, a, a nicer piece of the market share in these tough times. Because the clients that did stay with you, if they did ask for some assistance or whatever, you just you treated them with respect. 100%. We deal with our clients as if they're part of our family. That has always been our philosophy. And we're going to do whatever we can within a reasonable business format to take care of them. 
have to support them. So your banking relationships, you never really needed the bank, but you still maintain a banking we relationship. We do use banks for sure for parts of, of months and parts of the year we'll use banks, but we've always looked at our bank as a partner. You know, there we've done several acquisitions over the years, and before we'll go and buy a company, we will meet with our bank as a partner and as an advisor to make sure that they are on board as a courtesy. It's not that we may not even be using them for the transaction as far as them involved in financing at all, but we will bring them as a partner because we always want to deal with them where they're in the know and they're part of the same side of the table as opposed to finding something out after and being surprised. So communication with them, everything. regardless, is, is, it's still, everything. is still important. As it is inside with your clients, it is inside with your people, and it is inside with your strategic partners, which include banks and, and any other player that's working with you, including your accountants and lawyers. Do people still have a relationship with their bank managers? Is that something that still happens, these days? Yes, but much, I'll say much less. As you know, the banks, and I'm sure Josh deals with this all the time, banks change their people over like crazy. But we're very fortunate. We've been with Bank of Montreal for many years, and uh, they've been absolutely outstanding with us. You know, you have such, such a vast array of experience. As you look back over the years with the knowledge you have today, is there anything, is there any one or 12 things that you might have done, done a little bit differently? I would have liked to have done many more acquisitions over the years when opportunities stuck their head up. I think that we could have been more aggressive in that arena. It's a natural way to fuel growth. And it has all the synergistic benefits of common overheads and market and market uh, and market penetration that just really produces a lot of spinoff. But there's definitely obstacles when coming with acquisitions, and and as I know we're 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 starting to run out of time, but I would I would love to hear in the acquisitions what's been kind of the biggest stumbling box or areas that you have to overcome. looking for companies that have a common vision and service and a common culture and in, in personality and uh, and business outlook. It is in reality the biggest obstacle in doing acquisitions is not so much to find the business, but to find a business that matches your company's culture. How difficult? How long does it take to? get your culture imparted into some of the acquisitions that you made. I'll say that and, really. And is it, and one mm-hmm. other thing, and how much effort and and does everybody get involved or do you kind of task one or two people to say, let's go make it happen? When we were smaller, it was definitely one or two people, yeah. but I will tell you, we just completed an acquisition in January, a fantastic, wonderful French-Canadian company called Jérôme Hébert that was in business for over 50 years, wonderful company. And I will tell you, I, I, it, it was very, it was fascinating. It was a, like a military exercise, plotted out, uh, really, truly like a, 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 a military action, plotted out where we had every group inside our company with a very clear task list. And it went for over six months of doing a seamless integration where the clients were delighted, our people felt no pain, our technology worked out perfectly, everything went great, but it was a lot of planning. And, and my other partner, Blair Katz, was absolutely unbelievable in spearheading that operation with our wonderful executive team. What's with, what was the longest time frame that it took for an acquisition? Our, fr- our first major one that we did in 1991, where, uh, where we were up working 24 hours a day to make sure that we serviced the clients. We, didn't have, we really didn't have the planning resources or foresight. You know, that first, it's like that first kiss. You, know, you really never know what to expect, but when you get it, it's wow. I'm sure it was. <laughs> and as well, we stay on the topic of, of acquisitions and, and transition, really. Uh, we're going to have Nick Moretis coming in and talk a little bit on the tax side of that uh, that side of business. Excellent. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD with Stephen Siegel of Omnitrends. More after the break. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 
7.48 on today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people. Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. Uh, Steven Siegel is our guest of Omnitrends, and we also bring in Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau, to talk about uh, acquisitions, Josh. And I think one of the interesting aspects, I mean, Steven Siegel, that went into Omnitrends, he was an employee and then became a partner. So kind of an interesting aspect that maybe Nick can elaborate on. What are the areas, challenges that entrepreneurs should know when an employee becomes a partner and owner in a business? That, that's that been a question that's uh, come up many times over the years. Uh, when you're when you're in a large public company, it's it's relative, the remuneration of, uh, of key employees is very easily done through uh, stock options and they, they can get the options, sell them on the market. There's a ready liquid market out there. But in a private corporation, uh, you don't have the same rules. Uh, and the government recognizes that and comes out with tax policy. So here you have an entrepreneur who has key employees, it could be one or, or several, um, would like them involved with the business. And one best way to do that is to give them a stake in the business and in, in the equity. And how does he do it? Because there's a whole bunch of uh, tax rules. Uh, and many times what we tend to find is uh, the simplest of way could be um, just is making an arrangement uh, with the employee saying that, you're going to get X dollars of salary, plus you're going to get a, a percentage of our, our, our corporate profit, and it will be paid to you as a, say, as a bonus. And, and that might be the simplest way. You don't have to sign over shares. You don't have to have any seriously long agreements, et cetera. So really a profit share without ownership. It's a ownership. profit share, yeah. The, where the, the, it doesn't always work that well is, well, what if you one day want to sell the business? And, and the employee was hoping to get a, a cut of that proceeds. And uh, how, you, how do you arrange for, for that uh, scenario? So, but that many people will go that way. And then there's a whole bunch of plans that have been uh, brought up over time, uh, what we call deferred share units, uh, which are basically phantom plans that you pretend on paper to own shares and you get remunerated that way. But if you're going to have a, an actual transfer, make this uh, the key employee a shareholder, the, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is, well, what am I expecting this key employee to do? Am I expecting him to pay for the shares? Mm -hmm. uh, in, many, in many instances, these pay employees haven't built up a wealth. Uh, they've they're basically been receiving a salary. They've basically been paying a mortgage and raising a family. They may not have the money to go in and acquire. And that's when we start coming up with other mechanisms to bring in this employee if you do want him as a shareholder. I mean, the, the reality is there's a lot of owners that want that for their key employees, it's important for them to have, quote unquote, skin in the game. So how do you how do you kind of give them that or create that, uh, you know, and still abide by all the tax rules? And, and there are some and the, and there are some situations where uh, many consultants will tell you that uh, it's it's uh, have the employee pay something, uh, giving it giving shares for nothing may not be ideal from an, from the employer perspective because mm -hmm. when you do have money invested in the business there is a lot more at stake. Um, so now we have to start looking at uh, other, other, what's the rules that will kick in? Um, now, just becoming a shareholder, you have to understand that this key employee has a right to see the financial statements, has a right to ask questions regarding the results of the business, has a right to get his proportionate dividend when you decide to pull out a dividend. Um, it will, should be looking at signing a shareholder's agreement that defines his terms and responsibilities. So it's not simply, oh, here's some shares and you know, I'll, I'll speak to you in 12 months time when it's time to divvy up the profit. So this is sometimes where the owner says, well, maybe I won't actually give the shares. We'll come to that profit sharing where he can get a lot of the benefit, but zero of the control That's or right. demand or whatever. And what you're hoping by doing this is, is aside from now having him, there's an incentive now based upon the results of the business. 
And as, uh, as all entrepreneurs know, there could be years where you're working the 60, 70 hours a week and there's very little left at the end if there's a, if it's a bad recession, etc. And there's other years that maybe you only work 40 and there's too much money to count. But the, the, the employees, that's one of the, uh, the issues actually with key employees is that sometimes that, that link isn't always made. That effort doesn't always necessarily uh, uh, come into a pot of gold at the end. But what now we start looking at is, okay, so I want to bring in my employee and I don't want them to pay that much or pay nothing. How do I do it? Because the government is basically now putting it forward to the, uh, to the employers and saying, you're, the reason you're making him a shareholder is because he's an employee. And the reason you're going to give him shares that are worth something today, but we don't know what because it's a private company, is an employment benefit. And that's where all the rules now build up is that when you're uh, allowing an employee to become a shareholder of your company and he's not paying for the shares at their full value, there's an employment benefit behind there. So the employee could get taxed on this so-called gift that he's getting. Could, will get taxed is, is an appropriate term. Now, again, public companies, uh, the, one of the beauties of this is that they are not the ones actually paying the money to an employee. He acquires shares. Usually it's options on the market. He sells them to a third party out in the market, so somebody else paid them. But, if, uh, but the government does come in and say there's, a ben there's employment benefits. Private corporations where there isn't a ready market, the same rule comes in. He acquires shares. We now have uh, an employment benefit that will one day be taxed. And at least the fairness with private companies, because it isn't liquid, it will be taxed the day he sells. So it gives some uh, deferral of that uh, tax it to the employees. But still always private company, got to have some type of value. So well, that's I, an important uh, aspect as well. Steven Siegel's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur that's on the other side. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Remaining, remaining moments on today's entrepreneur with our guests Steven Siegel of Omnitrans and Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau. Nick, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, if the, if the owner doesn't want to you know, give any financial hardship to his employee, wants to bring them on. Is there something quick that you can mention that they could do? Yeah, there's usually one of two ways. They're either giving him shares that have value, in which case, uh, as I said, there was there's a whole bunch of stock option benefit rules that kick in that will eventually tax, tax those shares when he sells them or disposes of them as employment income. Other ways uh, of doing it is, uh, is, some, is a transaction that is similar to an estate freeze, where you're basically saying, look, the company say is worth just a number, a million dollars, we will freeze the existing shares to the existing owners for the million dollars. We bring everybody back in at uh, a nominal value. And there the employee is escaping this, uh, this, ta this employment taxation because the first million, uh, whether, when it, the company is ever sold, mm -hmm. will go to the existing owners. So that is, there, there are ways and techniques. And all that, that is what the discussions are usually about when we're d discussing this with entrepreneurs. Now, of course, the, the flip side of the coin, you're always talking about employees coming in. Now, what happens if an employee has to get out? Well, this, with a private corporation, this is something which has to be foreseen and discussed and, and planned out. Uh, in, in a public company, employee comes in, sells his shares in the open market, he's out. Um, the, what is the expectation when the employee is coming on board? And that's usually with something that we're asking. Is this someone who's going to stick to you to the very end, the day you sell the company? In which case, the exit strategy is very simple. He's selling to the third party as you are. But what if he leaves before then? It could be retiring. It could be uh, health reasons. It could be because he decides to move and, and he's no longer part of the company. What do you do with his shares? That pr is presumably provided in a shareholder's agreement. What happens? 
And here we get the nuances. Um, if if the, the employer or company buys back the shares, it could be a double tax situation for the employee, which could be horrible. If we can find somebody else to buy the shares, we might be able to escape some of this of, of the bad tax situation, although recently there's been some murmuring in, in Ottawa that that won't work either. So that has to be thought of because it could really hit the employee bad. Thinking ahead is important, as always. As, as always. And as we come to the remaining moment of the show, we turn to Steve Siegel and ask him, what would your one piece of advice be to today's entrepreneur? Well, as I talked about with, un- with having clear goals and objectives in the company, my advice would be understand why you come to work. Bottom line focus, to do business honorably and ethically, but to understand every day when you go to work, what is the reason that you're there and to stay on the plan. Hugely important because it's often that people lose their focus and lose their, to take their eye off the ball and it's, that's not good. So uh, absolutely, Dan, my quick takeaway uh, is kind of, you know, and Steve raised it a little bit, but it's always staying on top of your people. It's always giving them uh, a reason, the KPIs, the monitoring, uh, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs go by gut, but there is definitely a calculation side of it that needs to, that needs to be thought of. Nick Moretis of Orlando, thank you. And a big thank you to Stephen Siegel of Omnitrans for being our profile this week on Today's Entrepreneur. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you so much, guys. It's been amazing. And uh, so we're back next week and uh, another theme show, right? We're talking about transition. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about transition here and employees buying in. Next week, Dan, two companies coming in, one family transition and another that bought another business. We're going to hear both sides. Excellent. Should be a very important show for those who have family businesses. We'll talk next Monday night at 7 p.m. The Exchange is next. It's 8 o'clock on CJD.